0: If you're not already a Patreon subscriber, go to Patreon and look for The Theology Pit or go to TheologyPit.com and just find the link to Patreon. This month, the month of October 2020, you will get this entire two-hour interview for just a buck. Just a dollar. I mean, just, that's it. That's it. Less than a cup of coffee and you get the uncut two-hour interview with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett.
1: Hi, this is John Hall. And
2: this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward
0: FM. And you've just fallen into the theology theology pit. pit. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood podcaster, theologian, pastor, Samson Kovach, coming at you with episode four of our interview with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett, talking about his book Figural Reading and the Old Testament. Again, head on over to Patreon. You can do that and you can listen to this completely uncut. Not only that, but I know it's just a dollar for this, but if you spend a little bit more, you can hear the other interviews that I've done in their entirety and just listen to them straight through. And I have other ones that are gonna be coming up also and they will be up as soon as I possibly can get them up. So this is a great time to be alive and why not? Now here we're going to continue with the Reverend Doctor Don Collett. Are you familiar with um, Paul Copan's book? Is God a Moral Monster?
2: Uh, I did read it. Uh, maybe it's, I thought it was helpful. Because it for came the, out
0: like 2011, I think. Yeah, I thought it was helpful for sorting out I, I, some of
2: the issues in the conquest.
0: I liked it because that it seems that the philosophy you're talking about that's where it stems from. It's this yeah. postmodern, you know, uh, reaction to the brutality. Or right. the perceived brutality in right. the in, in the Old Testament, and saying, "Well, that's not that's not our God."
2: Yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, the early church read the conquest as a, uh, along with some more recent writers, someone like Meredith Klein, who I had as an Old Testament prof years ago in seminary, uh, read it as a foreshadowing of final judgment. It wasn't a moral model to be followed in all times and all places, but it was a it was a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen in Revelation 20 when when the sheep and the goats are separated, believer is no longer allowed to exist alongside unbeliever. Yeah. But uh this so they never took it as, you know, now you go and do likewise. <laughs> It was a way of, a figural way of pulling back the curtain on final judgment. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only one in the Old Testament. There's Sodom and Gomorrah. There's, you know, a number. that's just the conquest is, tr- they try to understand it in the categories of modern genocide. Yeah. And read that back into what's happening. I think Copen's book was helpful in showing why that's, that doesn't do justice to what's going on. I also read a very helpful uh, Lawson Stone who used to teach at Asbury, but he talks, uh, he's got a, a discussion of Joshua 1 through 12, where he shows uh, the, the various places in the book of Joshua where um, it's, it, you know, there's uh, the responses when, when the nations gather for war or when they make terms of peace. And, you know, that, that it isn't just judgment willy-nilly that happens. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not an issue I came here to talk about. It, it's, but, you know, the Old Testament's a book of war and nationalism. Let's do some repair work on it. There's a ripple effect that's set in. Yeah. And that ripple effect continues until you're outside both Testaments. Yeah. If Christ is the final revelation of God, and I believe he is, then there needs to be a canonical correlate to that. Of, of He's, uh, There needs to be a final witness to the final revelation, and that is the twofold canon of scripture. Uh, this is why we don't think when Muhammad comes along in the seventh century that uh, you know he trumps the rev- final revelation and the final witness given in Christ, or Joseph Smith, for that matter. <laughs>
0: Have you ever read the Quran?
2: I uh, read parts of it. <laughs> I haven't sat down and read it through and through. It gets quoted to me every time I go to Cairo, because uh, that's a very much their world. Yeah, where they're talking with people who read the Quran all the time.
0: But there are some incredible stories in there. I mean, um, yeah, you know, I mean, with with Old Testament parallels, you know, with Joseph, yeah. and it talks about how beautiful he was. Like he yeah. was just gorgeous. Like he would walk into a room and women couldn't stop looking at him. It says, it says that he that they would be so fixated on him that they while they were doing their work would yeah. cut their own hands off because they were so now i know what you're thinking the miraculous thing isn't cutting off the first hand yeah it's cutting off that second hand <laughs> <laughs> and that's why the quran is so inspired because
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> uh and this is this is very strange uh well i mean it would make sense that you know, if Potiphar's Potiphar's wife is trying to get Joseph, maybe this is sort of an embellishment and a continuation of that theme. Mm. Uh, yeah, the Quran. I mean,
0: he would have uh, totally went for her if she had hands.
2: Yeah, <laughs> but she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's how God could solve the problem of a lot of people is just remove their hands. Yeah.
0: Well, no, it didn't didn't work for Anakin Skywalker.
2: So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh
0: that's a Star Wars joke.
2: Yeah. I okay, okay. I you know, it's good in this in this podcast, you have to really be on your toes because <laughs> this is wide-ranging. You could go from one corner of the universe to another in a couple of sentences and you better be have your seatbelt on and be ready to respond.
0: Oh, we could <laughs> we go back a long long time ago to a galaxy far, far away if you're not careful.
2: I I didn't think the discussion would be that wide-ranging, you know. <laughs> uh, I thought we would stick with a couple of Rather low flying
0: issues. Oh, okay. Well, let's stay with the low flying. I, issues. I don't know what those or.
2: would be. You know, I'm, the, my low flying issues are big issues for other people.
0: Yeah. Well, no, that's that's. I mean, it's it, it really it's it's weird. Like I read your book, and the first thing I said is, okay, this isn't a book for the layman. Like, no, no, like, it's, no you know, I
2: didn't. I wasn't writing for. And, and I
0: and I figured that, but I'm like, I'm like, okay, so the target audience is people with a seminary education, mostly yeah. pastors, you know, and and that. And I'm like, okay, so the ones that are working hard. To properly interpret Scripture for their sermons, and he's just trying to mess all that up.
2: Yeah. And so, uh,
0: and so I, so I immediately got what the book was about. Like I said, okay, well, he's just a troublemaker. That's just. Trying to- I, you know,
2: I, I, thought there was a, uh, you know, the quadriga could be understood as a preaching model. I don't think that that, you know, was perhaps in the foreground when they were working it out. But, you know, you could, you know, one way to preach a great sermon is, you know, what, what does this scripture teach me about God? Yeah, yeah. The allegorical sense. What mm-hmm. does it teach me about what I should do? Mm-hmm. And what does it teach me about what I should hope for? Yeah. All rooted in the words of scripture or the literal sense. Uh, and, and seeing that scripture, uh, these aren't add-ons to scripture, but they're part of the, as I put it in the book, the theological landscape that the word operates in. You know, so you could, you could use it as a homiletical model.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it parallels a, um, if you want to use the word, sanctification, like a, a, a lifestyle with the um, orthodoxy, orthocardia, and uh, orthopraxis. Yeah. I, and so, and, and just in the way that you're understanding things, the way that you're in, uh, holding them close to yourself, and the way that you are expressing it outwards towards others. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, it would be like that interpretive, and and again, this is the um, reciprocation here. It's yeah. we're looking at these same models, right. just in in many different layers. Uh, in, yeah, in yeah. I wasn't
2: aware that Edwards had that sort of model. I only, do you know
0: the the uh, um, Trinity understanding of Edwards?
2: No, I've I've the only thing that I had ever read on Edwards many years ago was his work on the freedom of the will, and that was what mm-hmm. you know. Naturally, we were most interested in.
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it was, that's a good read. Like, yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, when I was at uh, Trinity, I studied closely with uh, Dr. Lou Mitchell. And I don't know okay. if you got to meet Lou or talk with him at all.
2: No, I didn't. Um,
0: he got his uh, PhD from Harvard in Jonathan Edwards, uh, specifically on Edwards' understanding of the beauty of God. Yeah. And he asked me, because I needed an elective, and he yeah. said, um, could, Would you like to take a class on Edwards? I've never taught one, I'd like to design one. And I said, sure, studying Jonathan Edwards from an Edwards scholar, like that's why not? Let's see. So I've read a lot of Edwards. I have a lot of uh, background with him. But one of the things that really struck me, so the way he explains the Trinity is God has a perfect idea of himself. We Mm -hmm. all have an idea of who we think we are and and what that is. But God has a perfect idea of himself. And that perfect idea of himself is reality, which is the son and the son is the perfect idea and he loves himself. He loves the perfect idea of himself and the son also loves the Father in the same way because he understands that he is the perfect idea of God. He is the the, the perfection and within that reciprocation of that love and admiration is not a um, an abstract, third thing, but it is the Holy Spirit himself. And so from that, then creation comes from that because God is constantly uh, reciprocating. So he is constantly sending out. So through creation, everything goes out and is expected to come back. So you have that flow also, which is why the necessity of um, the atonement and of, of Christ reconciling from the beginning was almost like that that these are these are my words here, the guarantee of the reality of yeah. that reciprocation of, yeah. of the world, of the Trinity. And so he understands the Trinity very relational in yeah. that way. So he doesn't get into the nuances of um, okay, uh you don't it's like you can't even fall into the different Trinitarian heresies in in that sense of like a dynamic monarchianism or anything or tritheism yeah. or anything like that. Because he's not so much talking about where who is what and what is who, and you know with the immutability of God, this is how God has always been. He's always known himself. He has always loved himself. this is, this is you know the, the, the depth of it. and so I, don't know, I just appreciated Jonathan Edwards' understanding there.
2: That would be and what's strange about it is that we can recognize this is always how God has been. He's always mm-hmm. been triune. yeah. why would biblical scholars? think that the old testament worked with some other kind of reality than that because they're they, idiots
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, uh, well i won't go on to name names i can think of a few but
0: <laughs> well it's, I've, I've that's always struck me too it's like you have some great thinkers on some subjects where i look at it and i'm like you're starting from a faulty premise you know and you're and you're really trying to bend backwards I,
2: yeah, what I see a lot of Old Testament, okay, let's just assume we we're talking within the realm of Christian mm-hmm. thinkers. They'll say, oh, I believe the Trinity. I just don't think there's any any real witness to it in the Old Testament. You have to wait until you get to the New for that. You know, it's at best, you know, instead of saying, look, the Old Testament gets there on its own terms with its own semantics, mm-hmm. which actually become fundamental, the authorizing conditions by which any Trinitarian grammar is going to, you know, categories like mm-hmm. the Son and the word and the wisdom of God, the spirit of God. Where do these arise from? Out of the blue? You know, mm-hmm. no, they come out of the grammar of the Old Testament and the way that those uh, titles for actual, what later become, later come to be called hypostases uh, or persons, you know, they, that, that, grammar is all taken and authorized from the Old Testament and the way that God is presented uh, as as one in relation to these realities. So, you, you yes, the Old Testament, it does state it differently, but at the same time, the grammar that the apostles are using is drawn directly from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, and, like um, Genesis, the first three verses, I see the Trinity there.
2: Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I follow the early church and the Reformation.
0: It, it's, it's like you have, you know, God, as we would say, God the Father— there and yeah. then you have the spirit yeah and the word within creation
2: yeah they're they're you know as as i think i was looking at mike horton's uh christian dogmatic not long ago where he was talking about the reason why they attributed personhood to the spirit rather than translating it as wind is because impersonal forces don't hover you know mm-hmm. the, the but the important thing about you know there always be there were disagreements about is the is who is God? Is this the full Godhead and then the Word and the Spirit are, are understood in relation, or is this implicitly God the Father? Uh, Calvin wrestled with that a little bit in his commentary. The point is, they didn't just go to Genesis one twenty six and say, let us make God in our own image. That's mm-hmm. that's triune. And then, then someone comes forward and says, oh, that's just a plural of majesty. How silly for you not to see that. Yeah. No, they're understanding the us in terms of a semantics that's already been set up in one through three.
0: And I think that that is explicitly told to us in the... Um uh, the five hymns in Revelation—that's drawing very strongly from the Old Testament yeah. with the holy, holy, holies. Yeah. Like just so, if if John's understanding is you know from the Old Testament and the way that they're relating, and then you have these five hymns that he's writing in Revelation, there's a clear indication that this isn't coming from somewhere new. Yeah, it's- this is a direct extrapolation from the Old Testament
2: yeah i I think part of, you're exactly right, and by the way, Gospel of John is a great place for the ontology of Christology as rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it's a great place to go in the New Testament um, but the, I think that another philosophical pressure on the Old Testament comes out of modern Kantianism where you have this movement toward epistemology, what we know beginning to legislate what is. Mm-hmm. So instead of the order of being, order of being preceding the order of knowing, which is how most folks prior to Kant would have understood it or the modern period, now you have the order of knowing preceding the order of being. So you get somebody who says, "Oh, I see there that God's presented in relation to word and spirit, but they couldn't have fully seen everything that you can see and say the Nicene Creed and therefore that the reality of the Trinity is not there until you can later fully see. You see that lurking in the background is the idea that what we know legislates what is.
0: Yeah, but they wouldn't have seen that without Tertullian. So if yeah. he was just born earlier.
2: What I want to keep the witness to the triune God and Christ rooted in the inspired words that the Holy Spirit gave to the writers. Not what's in the consciousness or noetic grasp yeah. of people. Yeah.
1: The Theology Pit is a partner-funded ministry. Please consider partnering with us by making a donation at thetheologypit.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page, hit the donate button, and make a contribution to the best Theology Pit podcast on the internet. Now let's get back to the show.
2: But it's a big problem. You know, every time it's like, well, they couldn't have seen it. And I said, well, what's your point? Um, you know, they're, God's using them to disclose himself. There's plenty they don't see. Yeah. The, the point is, what what do the words declare?
0: Not all that, but what don't we
2: see? Yeah. We don't even yeah. know what we yeah. don't see. Yeah, well, of course, we always yet, put ourselves out.
0: Well, of we're the, the generation that gets it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we figured
2: you, it out. You're, you know, this is, I'm told this is not the days of the judges, and so we've got a better hope. So we, we've got these bulletproof vests on. We're out of the reach of a bullet, and there's no chance that the Book of Judges would explain our day. I look at the Book of Judges and I say, "This is exactly where we're living."
0: Hey, kid, Samson's <laughs> a jerk. Then he's a jerk now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, in any case, I uh, I think you know uh, the book was just an attempt to try and say to I, I realize that in the evangelical world, a lot of the discourse that's in there is going to seem strange because mm-hmm. there's not much understanding of what the early church was doing with literal and figural sense Yeah,
0: but well, I, I admit I struggled myself through the second part yeah, of like I it think was it was it was difficult for me to wrap my head around your your first section, your third section, like yeah. setting it up and then ex- yeah. explaining it helped me a lot. But I still want to go back and reread that it's, second it, and, and, and it, follow Because back. we all have,
2: in all of our different enclaves that we come out of, we come out of this tradition, that tradition. We learn a certain grammar and language. Mm-hmm. Now, I learned a lot of these terms under the tradition of childs and sites you and know, what some people, I think, rather misleadingly call the Yale school. Was there really a Yale school? You know, Because there are all kinds of differences among people on, on that faculty up there. Uh, so that can be an unhelpful statement. At the same time, there was a tradition from about the 70s to the 90s, um, figures like Hans Frey and, and others, Reverend Childs, uh, you know, David Yago on our faculty was trained up there during that time. Mm-hmm. People like David Yago can understand the discourse because these are the kind of terms they used and yeah. they wrestled with. In evangelicalism, they're saying things like progressive revelation and covenant is the yeah. master category that does all the work, you know. And so uh, it's almost to the point of there was a professor at Calvin named John Steck that wrote an article I, I you know, thought was somewhat helpful. Even I might have had a few caveats, but it, you know, covenant overload. There's a tradition in the Reformed tradition; everything's covenant, you know. And mm-hmm. so you don't really pay close attention to the way the words go in Scripture, the literal sense, or much, let alone figural. Uh, extensions of the literal sense no it it you know it's all covenant um so i go to i learn this model you know the main thing being to when i'm in westminster to distinguish between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace that was a helpful distinction i don't deny that it's helpful it's broadly uh, congruent with law gospel distinction that said, you know, I go to Hosea, and all I could say about Hosea was he, you know, he's preaching a covenant lawsuit and turning people to the promise of Abraham. But you know, everything else that was going on in Hosea slipped through the grid.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, we we brought this overarching paradigm to the book, and it the danger there is you'll silence its own voice. It doesn't. It ceases to speak on its own terms. Yeah, and so when I started to wrestle with the canonical tradition, I started realizing. There, There is a way to sort of, uh, oddly enough, some of these modern con- canonical concerns about the formation of Scripture that Childs was wrestling with do link up with the theological instincts of the early church and the Reformation. Mm. So I was trying to get what I'd call a more Catholic hermeneutic in the sense of what the ch- what the church's grammar has been all down through time. You know, not Roman Catholic per se, which I take as... One instantiation of yeah. the Catholic tradition, but <laughs> my Roman Catholic friends will see it different. That's all right. Uh, I just feel somehow we need a we need another grammar to talk about these things. Progressive revelation isn't helpful. Um, you know, you can you, you they say, well, I don't mean I don't I don't use that term to mean the problematic things. You mean, yeah, but the you you well, got to qualify the thing for so many.
0: Were they saying progressive revelation as the unfolding of Scripture itself? Or were they using it more in the term of progressive understanding from the close of the They're not evolutionists,
2: Canaanites. you know, that would say we're progressing from a, a, a god of war and nationalism who's a baddie. No, no, baddie. I, mean, I mean that, you know, yeah. the,
0: the way that Scripture was written out like that was a progression and that's a progressive revelation but from the close of the canon to today we have a progressive understanding that's yeah, now taking place pro, pro, so are you think so when you're saying um you know progressive revelation are you including the understanding portion of it when, you, oh, when you're using those sure you,
2: people come to understand you can see more standing where matthew stands than say where hosea stands mm-hmm. so if you mean uh you know that to me, though, the Christological witness doesn't depend on human understanding in the first instance. It depends on the witness God has given in Scripture. Yeah. Because Scripture, biblical writers always speak more than they know, and that's because what they say is embedded in a providential ordering of things, ordered by the Word and the Word made flesh, which are one. Yeah. So I just don't like the term progressive because what it inevitably does is. Really, say that everything's progressing to the New Testament. You know, it's, it's like a detective novel, which is another one of their favorite illustrations. All the important clues are at the end, meaning the New Testament.
0: Wasn't that just the teleological sense?
2: Yeah, yeah right. And it, and it detaches from Christ as Arche, mm-hmm. who's present from the outset of creation as the one in and through whom God utters the world into existence and structures it.
0: So, would it be better to understand the the covenantal aspect as the covenant between God and Himself rather than the covenant between us. I mean, we have a big problem with individualism, but even um, corporatism.
2: Yeah, the covenant, you know, I mean, if you meant the in- internal covenant God had with Himself. Which they call the Pactum Salutis. Yeah. I, I wouldn't object to that too much. Well, which was uh,
0: physically expressed through the covenant with Israel and yeah. and with Christ. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and,
2: and, and, and then the promise to crush the head of the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I saw
0: that Mel Gibson movie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I I would rather uh, you know, in covenant begins to appear as a concept, you know, a term, but eat. Uh, When you get down to Noah, Mm -hmm. Um, I know, you know, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, covenant's not expressed in Genesis two and three, but the, you know, the concept is there, although the term is not there Mm -hmm. because you have curses coming down on Adam and the ground for his disobedience, which is understood in a covenantal economy. Mm -hmm. You want to say Genesis three, two and three is covenantal. I, I won't quibble too much. But you do have to ask yourself, why doesn't Genesis use the term uh, until you get to um, Genesis 6? Now, you know, I think John Murray tried to do justice to this and say, well, we we have to say it's not a covenant, it's an Edenic administration. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with uh, John Murray on some other issues that Meredith Klein criticized him on. I thought... Klein's criticisms were cogent. But one thing I do think Murray was right on is, you know, he's trying to be faithful to the scripture. We yeah. don't have covenant here. But in isn't any...
0: but isn't revelation simply a revealing of what's already there? So with yeah. a covenant relationship, it's just because it's revealed yeah. as yeah. being there, that doesn't mean that at that moment it was created. It's yeah, I... revealed, especially in the economy of God.
2: I'm, I'm going more in a Jewish direction more and more these days and mm-hmm. saying, yes, covenant comes along, but there's something that's prior to covenant. Obviously, it's God, yeah, yes, yeah. but there's – but even – I don't want to go quite that far back. The Torah, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. God reveals his Torah. Yeah. And the Jewish tradition even says it's, it's in beginning. They don't interpret that as Christologically. In beginning, God created heavens and earth. Uh, the Christian tradition, which John follows in John one one, NRK, is read Christologically. Mm-hmm. Christ is the beginning through whom God created yes. the world. Yeah. So it's referring to personal agency there within the Godhead. The, the Jewish re- reading is very close. The only dis- disagreement is the agency is the Torah. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Torah is used interchangeably with the word of God in the yeah. Old Testament. So it's very close. Yeah. The Torah is the word through whom he uttered. Because even though the Torah hadn't yet been written down, it's theologically prior to creation because it's rooted in God's character. Yeah. So I, I'm saying before covenant, there's something called Torah. Yeah. And
0: in Joel Skandrit's class, um, God the Father, when I was there, this this topic sort of came up a little bit and we yeah. talked about Trinitarian Jews hmm. and how they would hold to uh, God, his spirit, and Torah. Yeah, that all of those Torah being because, interchangeable with word. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and um, and, and that reality, his law, you know, the the that is reality.
2: Yeah. There, there's Torah is that also known in Proverbs eight thirty as that master architect through whom mm-hmm. God formed the world. Yeah. Uh, there, it's very close to the Christian tradition on that. The disagreement is on who is Christ is Christ the living Torah and the Torah. The essence of Torah, or or should we look for someone else?
0: Which is uh, why he um, is always faithful and cannot deny himself. Yeah, because if he is the Torah, then that is the faith of Christ. Yeah. He is the faith itself, and he can't deny himself.
2: Yeah, I I I want to say that God relates to creation through Torah, and then in in the first instance, and then covenant becomes. Uh, something that that operates within Torah rather than prior to it
0: or it's what's revealed through yeah, Torah. yeah through so Torah yeah. that'd be
2: a good way to yeah. put it. because I'm not denying that covenant's a very important concept but what I get uneasy with is it, it then becomes everything is covenant you know there's yeah. and Torah is sort of like subordinated to covenant instead of the other way around but, you know, that would be—I'm sure my reform friends wouldn't like this. Well, the, the, but the Torah tells of the covenant. <laughs> That's what—yeah, it does. And, I mean— But, it, but it's prior but, to covenant. Yeah, um, exactly. Necessarily, it, it would have to be. The, the Jewish tradition reads, but a sheet, as Torah. That's the agency that through whom God—even though the Torah wasn't yet written down because Torah expresses God's character as righteous, just, and wise, It, it is the— the uh, agency through whom he brought creation into being. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what Moses does later is just write down the disclosure of God's character as Torah that was already there yeah. in, the, in the beginning of creation.
0: It's, uh, whenever I um, teach my students about uh, the New Testament in particular, uh, I always say to them, Christianity does not come from the New Testament. The New Testament came out of Christianity the yeah. New Testament is the record of the the start of the church the Christian church what happened there it was already in place yeah. you don't need a New Testament to have Christianity and it seems like this is saying the same thing you don't yeah. need the written Torah for Torah to be
2: yeah it 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 does it it now it now is the witness to what was orally there from the beginning. But uh yeah, Christianity as old as creation. Now, I'm not saying there's a a uh, message of redemption in creation, although maybe some would want to say that. I am saying that the creation is christologically shaped. Yes. And it's Christian in that sense. Uh, when the fall happens and and redemption uh, becomes the reality, I, I don't think that was ahead of God. That's that's somehow mysteriously in His purpose from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that Christianity is is old as creation. The reason I struggle with saying that is because the Deists took that and understood this to mean that there was a gospel in the stars and that, you know, that it was accessible to everybody and it was something that you didn't need the proclamation of the gospel to mm-hmm. understand. That's Christianity under the figure of redemption. Yeah. Um
0: Well, I mean, look, this just kind of popped into my head here when you said that, but with the reciprocative aspect of it, the fall as necessary for the ability of something to go out in order yeah. for it to return. Yeah.
2: yeah. I— I think that we just have to give up our neat ways of dividing up time Yeah. in these yeah. linear pockets.
0: That's why, I mean, when I read um, Martinius C. Boers commentary on Galatians and his apocalyptic understanding of Paul in there, that really struck me because, because he was using terms, and you use the term yourself, uh, the Christ event Yeah. and, and what that meant. And, and I was like, huh, maybe if we start thinking of redemption as more of a revelation – of what yeah. is yeah. rather than this this linear form and you know just kind yeah. of started thinking so I, I think more in that way and I think it's helped me to understand what's going on in the old testament better because it's like well this seems weird. Why are they doing that? Because they don't know about Christ. They don't really know about the Messiah. They don't yeah. know about all these things. How is this even possible? And unless I want to go um, I mean being a dispensationalist can help you in, in certain areas, but I think that the um, the tragedy of it throws yeah. so much away. Yeah. But it's like I mean, as a dispensationalist, like I can compartmentalize things a lot easier, yeah. and I can I can say, well, yeah. God worked this way and this this way, and yeah, you know, and peculiar
2: however. to this. It's peculiar to this age, you know. It, it struck me as you were talking. There's an interesting place in Origin on the the Pascha, the Passover, mm-hmm. where he says that the Old Testament Passover, coming out of the Exodus was not really talking about the historical Passover that comes in Christ. It shares in that, but it, it's really speaking of a celestial Passover that's already present before Christ comes as in the incarnate one and celebrates the Passover by his death. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't separate the two, but he would say that primarily what the Old Testament Passover speaks of is the celestial Passover, and through that celestial Passover, looks forward to Christ coming in the flesh to uh, consummate in time. Yeah. Well, that Passover. sounds like Hebrews,
0: though. That sounds yeah. like the, the yeah. book of Hebrews, and it sounds like the um, uh, Jewish prayer book for Yom Kippur. Yeah, that that's what they're.
2: So he he wants to he he wants to stress that there's a vertical reality the Passover participates in even before Christ is incarnate. Mm-hmm. I think that really troubles a lot of people. <laughs>
0: well, and again, this is where I default back to Torrance and, and even um, even stuff that I've read from like uh, William Lane Craig and his you know, talking yeah. about time and yeah. our understanding of it. And it's like, if we're not, if we don't relate to time properly, if sin has truly affected everything in our life, you know, and, and I hold to the Noahic effect of the fall also, right. that it, it's just completely distorted our understanding. Why is time and space? Yeah. Not, you know, a part of that. And if it is, then the reality of what we're giving of, uh, given in Scripture of, from the foundation of the world, the eternality of the, you know, reciprocation. Yep. back This, it is. We just haven't experienced it yet. And just because we haven't experienced it doesn't mean it's not so. Hence, the Torah existing before it was written. Right.
2: Right. Because it's rooted in God's eternal character. Exactly. So... Yes, I I think that I I've shifted. I'm, that's my way of trying to going back to the covenant debate. You know, was there a covenant in Genesis two and three? The term doesn't appear. Well, the, you could argue, as tra- covenant theologians traditionally have, that the substance of the term is there, even though the term isn't. You know, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. What is it? It's a duck. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could also say that something else might be going on. What is there? Is is the disclosure of of the Torah? In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. The flip side being, if, if you obey, you'll live. And that the Torah, in some sense, precedes covenant, or you could put it the way you did—that the covenant flows out of Torah. I think that's really what the meaning of no, but eat in Genesis two and three is. Uh, in fact, Torah even goes back further from Genesis two seventeen to as the as the you know to the uh, but a sheet. Of Genesis one one, now I understand that Torah christologically as the christological word himself, Christ himself, uh, the eternal person of the Son. But you know, it, it strikes me that it may not be just incidental. You know that certainly the the writers of Genesis, whether it was Moses or anyone else, depending on what your views are they they could have used the term covenant there in Genesis 3 they know it we know that they know it because they use it everywhere else throughout Genesis why not in Genesis
0: 3 well let's look at the concept of angelic beings when did they come into existence were they there in Genesis 1 and 2 are they mentioned or do they not exist until there is a mentioning of them yeah, later yeah yeah it's like well no just because you know the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence sure
2: is is the is there an in in an, an, an Is there an ordering of things in Genesis 1 through 3 that's significant such that, you know, the absence of the term covenant is meant to say something about the relation of Torah and its priority to covenant? Not that you can detach covenant from Torah. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. argue that. But it just seemed to me significant from the way the words go in -hmm. the scripture that covenant's not disclosed as a term there. That's – it's – it, it, even if it's present it's still tr- this text is still teaching us something about the priority of torah is what i would say yeah i, I don't have any reason to deny that it's present
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
2: <laughs> but is that the only point that's being you know it does it does it suffice to just show that the substance is there the concept is there but not the term so we're you know we're not worried about it is there anything else being taught yeah is what i'm trying to say
0: you know. and and that's why um for Joel, I I wrote a paper on um, the uh, days of creation in, in Genesis one and and understanding it and saying is it saying is this telling us about creation or about the creator? Yeah, you know, and and what how exactly do the days flow? And I looked at the parallel structure between like day one and day four, day you know two yeah. and day five and day uh, three and six, and I said this is more telling us about um, you know what is occurring. And that, yeah. Yeah. keeping in mind too that this is being written to um, a, a people that came out of Egypt who were living in a Canaanite land and don't know anything about Yahweh, yeah. and all they know are you know the, the the sun god and and whatever else that they've been that yeah. they've been taught, and, and just kind of you know keeping it in that um, in that in that mindset and saying okay, so there's more going on here that the literary structure is telling us, yeah, than just this. Cold, linear. Oh yeah, you know, sure. This, that this is what's happening, yeah. and I think that if we extend that through just Genesis, right? You know, we can see the the entirety of uh, redemption. Yeah. You know, within that, it, it, because you know, ending with with Joseph and you know his brothers and everything that's going on there. Um, but I've, I've one thing I've always wanted to do is um, write a book called "Finding God in the Chocolate Factory," because. <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That that story has, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That story has one of the most despicable characters that has ever been created, and that's Grandpa Joe. Oh, and, really? and that's my that's my argument. That all of us, we are Grandpa Joe, and our only redeeming quality is in our grandson Charlie and his relationship to Willy Wonka. And even at the end of the movie, Grandpa Joe, he knows he's in the wrong. He's been called out, and it starts cursing at, more or less at uh, Willy Wonka saying he's an inhuman monster. He's wrong. Come on, we'll get out of here. Charlie still says no and gives back, you know, the everlasting gobstopper and, and does that and and wins the whole thing because it's based on the work of the son and who benefits from it. Grandpa Joe never repents, yeah. never gives up, but inherits everything through, yeah. through the work, through that work. And, and I, I'm looking at this saying, Man, when you look at—I I know we like to read scripture and always find ourselves as the hero in it, but right. like a lot of right. times we're—I mean, we're Gomer, we're that right. dastardly, you know, the uh, unfaithful prostitute that keeps, you know, going out and 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 doing these things, and our only redemption is through, you know the yeah. the son and his relationship too. And I also make the argument that um, Mr. Wonka orchestrated everything to get Charlie there. Like had um uh the uh candy um store owner make sure that he particularly got the last golden ticket, that it yeah. was this poor child. I mean, it's it's just there's so many parallels in there that I'm like, this is I, I think that this is a good way to understand um the, the the gospel message that translates through all of scripture. I think that every book that we have in Special Revelation just screams the uh, uh, the gospel
2: yeah that, and this is also a, a, uh, a the power of figural reading if the Bible Bible is ordered figurally to disclose Christ then it it positions our world and explains our world so that it explains in a, in a strange way that the, the way what is going on, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yep. rather than the other way around, that that world explains the Bible. Yeah, no, the, yeah, the Bible positions it, and it explains not only the world of history that the patriarchs live in, and then later the apostles, and it also extends to the the world. It orders the world that we're living in now, which is why it has power to explain these kind of redemptive motifs in movies. Mm-hmm. Mine would not be Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. It would be more like the biblical theology of westerns. (laughs) You know, uh, looking at the redemptive motif in westerns, Mm -hmm. which you see in the history of westerns going on all the way up until you, you know, really the the the, really the anti-redemptive western has got to be Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. Where uh, you know there's 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 just violence has no redemptive function. It's just violence.
0: Well, even the good, the bad, and the ugly is speculative.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, mean, that yeah. that would be that would be another one. Uh, it well, this is one of my favorites. Three-hour-long ser- Sergio Western. Leone's. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that Unforgiveness d- dedicated to Sergio Leone because Clint Eastwood sees this as continuing the genre that he learned from yeah, yeah. Sergio Leone. Uh, Yeah, you know, so there's that scene where they say, he says, I I don't deserve, you know, it's like the futility curses from Deuteronomy. I don't deserve this. I was Mm. building a house. You're thinking back there in Deuteronomy, it says, you'll build a house and you won't live in it. This is judgment. Yeah. He says, I don't deserve it. And Eastwood says, deserves, got nothing to do with it. (laughs) It's
0: just... uh, But I think Eastwood uh, redeemed himself in later years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Gran Torino. Yeah, that's true. Gran Torino was a great movie. Yeah, yeah, him laying down his life in order to... I mean, there's there's a lot.
2: But the Old Testament sets up a lot of this um, also... um, the close relation between the people and the land. Mm-hmm. Bloodshed pollutes the land. It has to be redeemed and cleansed somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of biblical theology from an Old Testament point of view in Westerns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose that would trouble some of us. That's why I don't like Westerns.
0: <laughs> maybe. maybe <laughs> I'm so. a New
2: Testament Christian.
0: I, well, I, I could see someone saying that. Yeah. Well, just remember, truth is like poetry, and most people hate poetry. <laughs> That's true. <So. laughs> yeah. Hey, Don, thank you yeah. so much for being here, being on the show and everything. And I highly recommend the figural reading and the Old Testament theology and practice. There, uh, links, of course, will be in the show notes and everything for people. Okay. To,
2: Great. Thank uh, you for having me out. here. I'm, I'm yeah. glad somebody's yeah. at least interested in
0: <laughs> so you're like finally one person read it <laughs> yes one of my students did read it <laughs> oh that's wonderful but uh, I hope to have you on again sometime and maybe we'll talk about okay. some some other things maybe sure. get on the topic of the woke church
2: oh wow like that. yeah that would be interesting
0: <laughs> I know some other pastors that I've, I've talked with that wanted to have a conversation on the air about that about that there
2: well there needs to be another point of view that's for sure
0: yeah definitely um, yeah but Cool. thank you much yep thank you for having me here uh,
1: Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Please take a moment to rate our podcast and leave a comment about what you like or what you don't like. Each rating and comment helps others discover this show. Don't forget to visit us at thetheologypit.com to make a donation. While on the website, we would appreciate it if you would share these podcasts with your friends and family on social media. Our Facebook page is also titled The Theology Pit. Stop over and give us a like. If you have any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please write to samson at the dot com. That's Samson, spelled S A M S O N, at thetheologypit.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's show.
0: I hope that you've enjoyed uh, this conversation. And I hope you'll check out the book, Figural Reading in the Old Testament um, by Don Collin. Um, It was a great conversation. I was really thankful to have him there with me. And quite possibly, in the next couple weeks, We may be discussing the woke church since we're moving into election season and that seems to be a hot button topic. So, hey, why not do a couple episodes on it? You know what I mean? I'll try and gather up some pastors and we'll see what happens. If not, I'll perhaps do another interview with someone from Africa. But stay blessed.
1: This and more on the next Theology Pit.